Why don't we turn in our Bibles to Isaiah 22 as we continue our journey through the book of Isaiah together. Isaiah 22 and 23 kind of wrap up a section here we've been looking at together in Isaiah's prophecy, which uh, give to us a section uh, from chapters 13 to about chapters 23 of God pronouncing these burdens or judgments specifically against uh, particularly the different Gentile nations. Uh, We've seen him address numerous different ones. Uniquely in the midst of this, uh, chapter 22, however, gives to us, it seems, a word specifically uh, of God's pronunciation of a judgment against the people uh, of Judah and Jerusalem in particular, and one might wonder why that ends up right in the midst of this section where God's addressing Egypt and Ethiopia and Tyre and all the other nations, and perhaps the best answer for that is that God looked upon his people at this time and they were acting just like the Gentile nations, that God didn't see much distinction between his own people and the people who were in the world, who did not know God, who did not have the word of God, and it's almost kind of a a further indictment that God's looking upon them, recognizing how sad and tragic it is when the people of God behave just like the people of the world. And there's very little distinction between them, morally, spiritually, the way they live their lives. Uh, Though we have the word of God, though we have a relationship with God, that's always a very tragic thing. And that's why, of course, Peter in the New Testament, when he talks about uh, that judgment begins at the house of God, because it's a, a real sad and tragic thing when we know better and we have at our disposal the scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet sometimes... Sadly, the church and God's people, we conduct ourselves really much different than the world does, Uh, whether it's the way that we're behaving, whether it's our divorce rates, whether it's our whatever you pick your poison there. um, It's a real sad and unfortunate thing, but we see it happen even in the modern church. And here God addresses, it seems, Jerusalem, particularly in Judah, because at this time they were in great moral decline. And so right in the midst of this, chapter 22, this burden particularly, we notice here it says, is the burden against the valley of vision. Now, again, not a direct reference to Jerusalem, but if you know where Jerusalem is situated and there are valleys all around it, the Kidron Valley, and uh, no doubt this is perhaps an indication, this just using this language, and we can tell as we go through it that God's particularly addressing, but this, you could say, is basically the burden against Jerusalem against the southern area of Judah, he then begins by saying to them, what ails you now that you have all gone up to the housetops, you who are full of noise, a tumultuous city, a joyous city. So again, notice he's referencing what they would do. Their housetop many times was a location that they would utilize as a sort of an extension of their interior home life. They had flat roofs, and so uh, many times the housetop was sort of like an outdoor patio area. They would go up in an area where things were hot, mid-eastern climate, and you have condensed houses together to be able to go up to the housetop and to be flattened off, allowed at times to pick up more of the breeze. There was a little more of an airflow. So many times these were areas where they would go to, and they were sort of extensions of their living area. And here it seems the picture is... They're up on the rooftops, uh, on the housetops, and they're full of noise. They're in a joyous condition. The idea is they're very carefree. 
They seem to be celebrating to some extent. And this is shocking to the Lord because he's looking at this situation and recognizing you should be grieving, you should be sad, you should be humble and concerned because of the conditions among you and the sin that was rampant among the people, but yet they were very carefree, they didn't seem to really have any degree of concern over their own immoral living at that time, and they were somewhat celebrating when the reality was the judgment of God was hovering over their lives, and they were kind of completely oblivious to it. They were just living carefree and kind of not even recognizing their own degree of moral depravity, not recognizing their own pride, but that is, as we often see in the Word of God, one of the greatest problems when a person's heart or a people group's heart has become filled with pride is one of the worst parts about pride is it's a very blinding thing and a person doesn't even know that they're proud. Uh, And that's the most insidious part of pride is that we can't even recognize our own proud condition. And this seems to be the case with Judah and Jerusalem at this time. He then goes on to speak about what was impending and coming upon them. Uh, He says, verse 2 going on, you are slain men are not slain with the sword, nor dead in battle. All your rulers have fled together. They are captured by the archers. All who are found in you are bound together. They have fled from afar. Therefore, I said, look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not labor to comfort me because of the plundering of the daughter of of my people, for it is a day of trouble, he says, verse 5, and treading down and perplexity by the Lord God of hosts in the valley of vision, breaking down the walls and crying to the mountains. He says, Elam bore the quiver with chariots of men and horsemen. The picture there is the, the, the coming in of the enemy invaders. And Kir has uncovered the shield. The idea is the defenses Uh, have been removed. And he says, verse 7, it shall come to pass that your choicest valleys shall be full of chariots and horsemen shall set themselves in array at the gate. The eyes at the gates of the city. So it's a picture here of of a tremendous invasion happening there in Jerusalem, in the southern area of Judah, that though they thought they were fortified, though they thought that they were safe, that this invasion comes in, and of course we know both the Assyrians came in initially, brought great devastation, even to Judah, didn't conquer it, they were able to stave off the Assyrians, but ultimately the Babylonians would come in later on historically, would lay siege to the city, would conquer Judah and Jerusalem, would ravage and destroy the city, the walls would be broken down, the gates would be burned with fire, as Nehemiah describes to us in chapter 1, and they're taken away as captives, remember, for 70 years into captivity. And you notice that what Isaiah is describing here uh, is how conditions would become so bad among them, and though there would be some enemy invasion, there would be loss in that manner, you can tell as he's describing there, particularly in the part of verse 2, he says, your slain men are not slain with the sword nor dead in battle. And what he's describing is the severity of the conditions among the people of God being so bad, predominantly, really first and foremost, by just things like starvation and sickness and disease. Because as they would come in and lay siege to the city, which is what they often did, it was a very tactical thing, 
if you came in and laid siege to a city, even a walled city, many times you didn't have to bring out the sword or, or launch spears because if you would just surround a city and you would cut off its food supply, its ability for people to go in and out to the fields, to gather food, to hunt, to take in their crops, to get fresh water, you could literally, ultimately, if you were patient enough through laying siege to a city, you could conquer it by starvation and sickness and disease because as the people were restricted from resources from without, as they weren't able to go in and out, eventually desperation would set in, hunger, starvation, the worst of things, cannibalism, people would begin to become sick, people would die within the city walls, they weren't able to bury their dead, now you have disease and illness spreading among the people. And as Isaiah is seeing some of this, he's picturing here as the city was laid siege, how a great deal of their loss would be that initial process of just the weakening of the people within the walls to where when you would lay siege to a city, you wouldn't have to large, launch a major military campaign because the people would be so weakened and diseased and sickened that you could then just very easily go in and conquer them with very little military conflict. And this was a very common uh, tactic uh, many a times in ancient warfare, there was less bloodshed. You didn't lose as many lives or resources. You would just lay siege to a city, greatly weaken it, break its back. And then with very little effort, you would go in and once it was completely weakened and depleted uh, to conquer it. Now, as Isaiah is seeing this and the gravity of it, and again, remember, the, these are things that he's not just hearing, but as we've been looking at things he's God's giving him images. He's seeing these things in his mind and the gravity of what was coming upon the people of God in their future and the, the, really the, the carnage and the catastrophe of what they were going to suffer. Uh, he says there in verse 4, he says, Therefore I said, look away from me. And look what he says. He says, I weep bitterly. Do not comfort me because of verse 4. He says, the plundering of the daughter of my people. In other words, as he sees the dead bodies and the carnage and, and all of the horrible circumstances among the people of God, the Jews there, he literally is just brought to weeping and just deep grief and mourning because it's such a horrific sight to see. And it was just so hard to look upon it that his heart was greatly moved by it. And again, this shows you that Isaiah, again, though he's pronouncing very heavy things, I mean, again, as we've been going through these chapters together, I mean, he's saying some really strong, hard things regarding the judgment of God and the severity of God. But notice still that these things aren't coming from a self-righteous, you know, condescending attitude where he's looking down his nose at these people and he's enjoying the judgment that God's going to bring against these different nations or even against his own people he has a broken heart over these things, and it's in a degree of concern and compassion, and here he speaks of, of weeping and having a broken heart as he sees what really the people were bringing upon themselves. And he says, it causes me to grieve and to weep and to mourn because what I'm seeing is whether it was the Gentile nations or even God's own people, these people are bringing in many ways self-destruction upon themselves. Because a lot of what was happening as these things were unfolding were in some ways the repercussions, whether it was the Gentile nations and even God's own people, they were happening because they had turned away from God, 
They had entered into idolatry, and eventually the things reached their boiling point, and God basically took off, as we're going to see, he's going to say in the next verses, God basically pulled back his hand of preservation, and he let them become vulnerable to enemy invaders because of the fact that they did not want God's involvement. And so as they did not want God's involvement, to a degree, God pulled back his protection, and at times, whether it was the Assyrians, whether it was the Babylonians, whether it was the Medo-Persians, whether it was the Romans, God would let them at times suffer consequences, but many of them were, were self-inflicted. And that's the unfortunate aspect of sin is that it is a self-destructive thing. It's not just that it's wrong. You know, God doesn't want us not to sin j just because it's bad. God doesn't want us to sin because it's bad for us. And it ruins our lives, and it brings damage. And, you know, like Isaiah, to some degree, we can probably relate as we maybe look at, you know, people that we know, people that we love, maybe our, our children, maybe our grandchildren, maybe our, uh, you know, our brothers or sisters or cousins or family members or maybe coworkers or people that are our friends, and we see them doing self-destructive things and the repercussions of their bad choices, whether it's you know a life of substance abuse or just a life of living hard and fast, sinful and contradicting God's will and God's word, sexual sin. Again, you can fill in the blank and pick your poison there. Sin has destructive, damaging consequences and how we, like Isaiah, may seek to warn and caution and speak. And then we find ourselves kind of like, almost like wanting to look away. Like, I can't watch you keep destroying your life like this. This is killing me. I, it, it is heartbreaking to have to watch you ruining your life. And it is just a, a sad thing to see people, in a sense, ruining their own lives, to see, again, even our own society and our own nation, you know, looking and seeing just society like self-destructing, like the Roman Empire. You know, nobody conquered the Roman Empire. They wrecked themselves because of moral decay. I mean, that was the iron fist of the Roman Empire. Nobody ever conquered the Roman Empire. They decayed and fell apart from within because of the fact of their rampant immorality and their brazen way that they lived contradictory to everything that was righteous and moral. And here Isaiah, he's, he's brokenhearted. He says, this is a day of great trouble and perplexity, he says, by the Lord God of hosts, breaking down the walls, crying to the mountain. He says, seeing again the enemy forces coming in. And look what he says in verse 8. And notice it's capitalized because that's a reference to God. It should be capitalized in your Bible, not just because it's the beginning of a sentence. And grammar's sake, because of the fact that it's a reference to God. And it says of God, verse 8, he removed the protection of Judah. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. You also saw the damage to the city of David that it was great. So notice, Isaiah recognized the reason why they had been conquered, the reason why they suffered what they did, is he said, God, you who protect and watch over your people, God, you removed your protective barrier. God, it, it was you who were our defense and our shield, right? How many times do we see allusions to this in the Old Testament? 
the Psalms and other places where God speaks of himself as Israel's defense, as his chosen people's shield and his protector and the banner over them. And now Isaiah recognizes, and here's what's true of that, as much as it's not our own military arsenal or our own military strategies, our own resources, how many times in the history of Israel as we read through the Old Testament, we see times, right, when they were greatly outnumbered and they were incredible victors in battle. And then we see other times where against very minor, insignificant enemies, right, they would, they would you know, say, hey, that enemy's so insignificant and, and they had so much more resources at their disposal and they would be defeated, because there would be sin in the camp, like in the days of Achan, you know, when the Bible describes in Joshua chapter 7, and because of the, the sin and consequences of a small remnant, they suffered great defeat militarily. And again, they understood, and here God's word speaks about how in this situation, Isaiah says this particular damage and defeat that they were suffering in that day historically, Isaiah says, God, it's because you removed your protection. You pulled back your protective barrier. You pulled back your protection. And basically what God had been holding off when they were trusting God for their protection and they were looking to God for the protection, he says, God, you, you just pulled back your protection. And when you moved your protection, he says, that unfortunately resulted in us becoming vulnerable. And then the enemy who always wanted to conquer us was just able to conquer us. That's the idea there because God's protective barrier was removed. Interesting, he says there, of, of the people of God in Israel, he says, you looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. That's where the armory was in that day. What's God saying to them? God's saying, you were looking to all these other things. You were looking to your own military arsenal. You were looking to all of your resources. You looked in that day to the armor of the house of the forest. He says, verse 9, you also saw the damage to the city of David, that it was great. And then watch what he goes on to say. And you gathered together the waters of the lower pool. You numbered the houses of Jerusalem. And the houses you broke down to fortify the wall. So again, he's describing things that they did historically under the time of Hezekiah's reign, this broad wall that was built. And one of the ways they did that is they literally certain houses that were in the walls of Jerusalem. And remember, in that day, these massive walls at times, literally there were residences built right into the city walls. Remember in the days of Rahab where she hung the scarlet thread out the window and it was the walls of Jericho and she actually had a residence in them. So what's describing here is they realized the walls were damaged and broken down and they needed the walls for a defense system. So they literally were taking people's homes from them pushing people out of their homes and saying, look, we need all the, the rocks and the boulders and the reefs. We, we've got to fortify the wall. And so literally, he says, they were doing everything they could to scramble. The idea is to protect themselves, to defend themselves, to try and reinforce their own safety. He says, you were numbering houses, the houses, literally some of the houses are being broken down. He says there, verse 10, to fortify the wall, to make it stronger to build this broad wall that was built in Hezekiah's day. They discovered it part of it back in the 1970s. You can Google and see pictures of it yourself, of what they've archaeologically uh, unearthed of part of this broad wall that's described right here that they were reinforcing and fortifying. He also says, verse 11, and you made a reservoir between the two walls, that is the outer and the inner wall, for the water of the old pool 
Notice what God's indictment is, though they were doing all these things, but you did not look to its maker, nor did you have respect for him who formed it long ago. So they looked to their armament. They, they went to the, you know, where all the military stockpile was. Hey, how many weapons do we have? Shields, swords, spears. They're, they're, they're looking at that as their defense, thinking maybe we can defend ourselves that way. Uh, they're fortifying the wall. They're reinforcing, trying to do everything they can to keep themselves safe from being, you know, invaded and conquered. And then even as well, what's referred to here in verse both 9 as well as uh, in verse 11 regarding what's often referred to as Hezekiah's tunnel where they brought water in to have a fresh water source, knowing what was going to happen, that they built this water tunnel. He refers to there in verse 9. They gathered together the waters of the lower pool. Then verse 11, you made a reservoir, that is of water, between the walls for the water, verse 11, of the old pool. And again, what that's describing, and you know, if the Lord permits in the things still transpire. And for those of us who go on the trip to Israel, there, Hezekiah's tunnel is there. And I, I've been to Israel one time before, had the opportunity to walk through it. Didn't interest me. Uh, if you want to take the tour through it, God bless you. You know, there are people who find that interesting and unique. Uh, it is a very interesting archaeological uh, site to be able to uh, be aware of. Again, what basically happened in that day there was that main source of water of the Gihon Springs in the Kidron Valley, and they knew that if siege was laid against them, they were going to be in a desperate situation, and they wanted to protect that water that came from the Gihon Springs. So in really what was quite a, you know, archaeological, uh, or I guess an architectural, you could say, you know, really amazing thing that they did, this tunnel, just short of 1,800 feet, about 777 feet, they started at both ends digging through solid bedrock. Again, keep in mind in that day, no power tools, men with chisels, and a lot of sweat equity. Couldn't have feminine men in that day. Wasn't going to work. Chiseling through rock, chiseling through rock, chiseling through rock from both ends. One group going from the Gihon Spring, the, the other digging from the other side inside of the city there, digging together 1,777 feet. They managed to connect they cover the water source outside the city so it's not seen, so that then they have a fresh water flow of water. I mean, this amazing thing, not only that they were imagined to dig through it, but the fact that they were able to start at two different locations <laughs> and actually find themselves and meet together. Uh, I mean, just absolutely amazing that they were able to do such. And again, this is what this is describing here, that they were able to create this water source. So, But look, God's describing what they did they turned to their military supplies. They went and checked their armory. Uh, they reinforced the walls. They built themselves a fresh water supply. But what was God's biggest concern in all that? Verse 11, he says, but you did not look to your maker. In other words, you did all these things in your human effort and your flesh, but you never prayed. You never sought me, God says. You never looked to me as your defense. God wanted them to ultimately look to him. He says, you never had respect for him who fashioned these things a long ago. In other words, how did the Gihon Springs get there? Their maker and creator put it there. <laughs> Where did the rocks come from to fortify the wall? Because God put the rocks on the planet for them to build a wall. Who gave them the skill and the knowledge to build 
weapons and swords and armament and create an armory. God did. And God's concern was, you've done all these things in your human efforts and tasks, but you did not respectfully seek God's help, and therefore God still let them be defeated because they weren't depending upon God. They weren't relying on God. And it's a good lesson for whether it was Israel on that day historically, whether it's Israel currently, or whether it's our own nation or any nation historically for that matter, that our defense is not in our military, it's not in our armory, it's not in our ingenuity or our resources or our economy. Our protection and safety is in the Lord, period. And not to say those other things don't have value, but too many times we think that we can just take care of everything on our own, we'll save ourselves, we'll protect ourselves, we'll preserve ourselves, and, and God's greatest concern is you're looking to everything but me. And we want to be careful of that because we can do that in our personal lives too. You know, we do this, we do that, we kind of work all these angles and we're, we're all great at scheming and, you know, manipulating things and I'm going to take care of this problem on my own. I'm going to go to this bank account and I'm going to get that I need from there and then I'm going to work on this and I'm going to fix that and, and, and I know I can fix this problem and some problems you can't fix. I can't resolve some problems are intended to get us to say, God, unless you get involved, I'm done. <laughs> the ship is sinking. And those are good life lessons. Not that God can't work through other things and we should not be responsible, but ultimately, we don't want to make the mistake that God mentions in verse 11 there where we don't look to God and we don't have reverence for God and realize that he is the one ultimately that we need to rely upon and depend upon. That's been the great lesson through all these chapters as God keeps reinforcing to his people, why are you looking to other things but you're not depending on me? You're not relying on me. You're not looking to me, whether it's for your protection or your provision or the power they needed, whatever that may be. We want to look to the Lord. He's our ultimate source and supply. Verse 12, and in that day, the Lord God of hosts called for weeping and for mourning, for baldness and for girding with sackcloth. Again, these were ways they would outwardly express themselves in grief and mourning, shaving of the head, shaving of the beards, wearing of sackcloth. These were, again, they were very expressive people and they would manifest their grief in that way. But instead, this is what God's saying, you should be grieving, you should be humbled, you should be mourning over the conditions and what's going on, but instead, though God wanted them to be grieving over their sin and sad over the conditions, instead, verse 13, joy and gladness, slaying oxen and killing sheep, eating meat and drinking wine. In other words, they were partying away in a carefree attitude saying, verse 13, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we're just going to die. In other words, there was this attitude of, you know what, who knows what's going to happen, so we might as well just live carefree and party and indulge ourselves. And God was looking at this, and again, another thing he was greatly displeased with, not only that they weren't looking to God, but they basically had no remorse over their sin. And God's saying, you should have remorse over your sin. You should be grieved over it, saddened. You should be humbled and broken in spirit. And instead, they were carefree and they were obstinate and it didn't even bother them that they were living outside of the will of God. And boy, that's always a very sad and scary thing 
when basically we can ever find ourselves not only not being saddened over our sin, but basically these people in kind of their party atmosphere, in essence, what they were doing is they were just pacifying their own conscience by inebriating themselves with their party and their drinking because they didn't want to face the reality of their own situation. And boy, that's a great mistake sometimes too, where whether it's popping pills or snorting this or drinking that, or even just reveling and partying and trying to stay so busy and, and make life just all about fun. And part of what that is, is just a bad coping mechanism for not accepting reality that your life's a mess. And we've all done that before, and we sadly see people doing that at times, is basically they're trying to distract themselves from dealing with reality, which is that things are not good and they need to be addressed. And here God saw this happening with his people, and he was greatly concerned over it, and he in a sense is indicting them of this. Verse 14, then it was revealed in my hearing by the Lord of hosts, Isaiah says, surely for this iniquity... There will be no atonement for you, that is no payment, even to your death, says the Lord God of hosts. Now, in a sense, God's saying two things there. One, there's no atonement for this sin. Why? Because they weren't looking to the Lord for salvation. And there is no other way to experience atonement for sin than to cry out for God's salvation. That's the only way atonement comes from. Only God can forgive sin. But in a secondary sense, I think what God's alluding to there through the prophet is what they had done was to a degree now where it was inevitable that the consequences were coming. They couldn't just keep ignoring, keep dismissing, acting like things were never going to catch up with them because that's a great human problem when people, again, are trying to ignore reality, especially if it's about their own disobedience or their sins or their failures, and they keep trying to just push to the next day, one more party, one more, and, and kind of eventually it catches up. And God's saying, there's, there's no escaping this. The consequences are going to come. They're going to come to pass. And look, let me just say, we have to understand, too, that when the Bible tells us what we sow, we reap, and the wages of our sin is death, that God actually lets us receive, if you would, the payment that is due for our own sins and mistakes and failures sometimes consequentially. That's actually very loving of God. Because I don't know about you, I can speak from personal experience in my own life, consequences are the greatest teachers in the world. Because you can dispute and argue with people if they try and tell you what you're doing wrong or show you what you're doing wrong, but when you're living the consequences, you can't argue with that. <laughs> and they're wonderful teachers. They're wonderful correctors. That's why the proverb says, the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Sometimes God just says, you know what? Let me just let you eat the fruit of that for a little while. And after you eat the poisonous fruit, you come to such a clear recognition, man, that was the stupidest thing I've ever done. I don't ever want to do that again. That is the grossest fruit I ever had to eat. It was miserable and unpleasant, and I hated it. And God says, great, so then let's never plant seeds like that again. And it teaches us wonderful lessons. And what it also does, it's a great deterrent because it oftentimes protects us from going back to the same paths again. And so whether it's nationally or whether it's personally, God says to him here, listen, there's no escaping the consequences were ultimately coming upon the nation. Now, one thing, of course, that's bad when a nation is deteriorating is sometimes it's stemming from the top down, and it's the leaders who are actually 
perpetuating those problems. And this is what the second half of the chapter addresses here, how it was the leaders themselves who were, in a sense, bringing many of these things to pass. He says, verse 15, thus says the Lord God of hosts, go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house. Now, Shebna, the steward, it's a reference there. I know it just says steward, but it's a, a reference to being the steward over the house of the treasury of King Hezekiah. So this is a very high-ranking position, what's being described here. Someone who's over the treasury of the king's storehouse. Again, you're talking about a lot of resources, gold, wealth, silver, a very prominent position and Shebna was the steward over these things. He had the authority and the key to manage the king's resources as a steward of the king's treasury house. And he says, go and speak to Shebna, this man who was not being faithful in his stewardship, saying, what have you here? And whom have you here that you have hewn a sepulcher here as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in a rock. So basically what apparently Shebna had done is he had mismanaged as a poor steward this wealth and resources that he had stewardship over, and he utilized these resources not for the Lord's purposes or for the king's purposes, but for his own self-interest. And it describes here how he built himself this very ornate, fancy sepulcher, uh, basically a place where you would bury the dead, and he builds himself this innate, beautiful burial place. Why? Because he wants to be important, and he wants to be recognized, and he wants to be remembered. And so he's basically utilizing his position, utilizing his privileges for his own self-interest to just exalt himself. So he's someone who has a place of leadership, he has a place of power, a place of prominence that he's been afforded in his life, and he's mismanaging the stewardship by basically, in pride, abusing his position and trying to make a name for himself, make himself seem important, make himself seem special, and he's abusing his position and responsibility, and it's going to result in a loss of opportunity because God's going to say, you've abused the position, you don't deserve the role anymore. And this is what begins to happen. Look what he says, verse 17. Indeed, the Lord will throw you away. Now, that's scary enough, but then he adds, violently. Now, I imagine if anybody can pitch a serious fastball, it's God. I don't want him to throw me away, let alone I want to throw me away violently. He says, the Lord will throw you. It kind of sounds like it's going to happen suddenly. Like it's not going to be a gradual decline, you know, kind of failure, 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 that one day God's going to just say, you know what? like packing a snowball. <laughs> and then he just very abruptly just dethrones Shebna. He says, oh, mighty man, he will surely seize you. Verse 18, he will surely turn violently and toss you like a ball into a large country, and there you shall die. And there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. In other words, here you are, your glorious chariots, you're parading yourself. You know, you've created these glorious chariots, anything to parade myself, make myself more known, publicize myself, make my name more aware, you know. This kind of stuff reminds me of people who I see in ministry times, I can't stand when the name of their church is more prominent on their website than their church name. I mean, just this, some of this kind of thing, I'm thinking myself, or, or their 
their stuff is, it's all about their face and their picture. I mean, are you a mascot or are you a minister? What are you? And here, you've got your chariots, you're parading yourself around, making yourself a, a big deal. He says, it's going to be the shame of your master's house. Verse 19, God says, so I will drive you out of your office and from your position, he will pull you down. And that's exactly what God unfortunately did with Shebna. And again, it's a sobering reminder of the spiritual reality that if we abuse our positions, our privileges, the roles and responsibilities that God affords to us sometimes in our life, whether it's in kingdom service, whether it's other roles and responsibilities at times we may be privileged with, that we should always soberly remember that if we get arrogant and proud and we start abusing that role that God may choose to remove the opportunity from us. God may choose to dethrone us and to take away, if you would, and drive us out of an office or a position or a role. He may pull us down and strip that opportunity away from us if he sees we've abused it to a degree that he ultimately can no longer allow us to be in it. Verse 20, it says, and then it shall be in that day that I will call, notice God calls him my servant, Eliakim. So notice the different who God's going to use to replace Shebna in his role as the steward over the house of the Lord. It told here in verse uh, 15 through 19 that Shebna was basically someone who was self-serving. He used his role and opportunity for his own self-interest and to serve his own purposes. Notice the difference. Eliakim, who becomes his replacement, he's someone who serves the purposes of God. His interest is not serving himself or being self-serving. It's actually to serve the purposes of God. God calls him my servant, Eliakim. I will clothe him with your robe. The idea is give him your position and strengthen him with your belt. I will commit, here it is clearly, verse 21, I will commit your responsibility into his hand. In other words, God says, I'm taking the responsibility away from you, Shebna, and I'm giving the responsibility now to him. You've lost the position, and I'm now giving your position to someone that God deemed more worthy of. And we see this pattern in Scripture, right? God dethroned Saul. He gave the throne to David. And, and so God does this from time to time. If he sees it's a necessary thing, and this was a case where Shebna was dethroned, he was driven out of his office and position, and God says, I'm now going to commit your responsibility into this new man's hand because he will be, notice verse 21, a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Notice, a, a father. What does a father do? A father, if it's a, a good, healthy, appropriate father, they care for someone. They properly take care of people, and they actually have a desire for caring for and, and tending to the needs of those that are under their authority, if you would. They don't use their authority to abuse it or to basically use it for a self-serving purpose. They use their authority to help people and to actually invest in people and like a father caring for their children. And again, you can see the heart difference, a servant, a father-like figure. This was the difference in Eliakim, which was why God said he should have that responsibility. I'm taking it from him and I'm giving it to this person instead. Verse 22, in the key of the house of David... I will lay on his shoulder, and so he shall open and no one shut. 
and he shall shut and no one shall open, and I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. So notice, Eliakim, very different. He is going to receive this key, and the key in that day many times wasn't like a little tiny key like we picture for locks today. It actually was a large key because there were large doors and large locks. So it was a very prominent thing when you had the key, and when you possessed that key, it was an indication to everyone you were a person who had authority to be able to determine when something was opened and when it was closed. So as the person in charge of the key, the steward holding that key, you basically were someone, it was very evident, that could determine someone having access to something or someone being denied to something. So this position, again, as I said, was very prominent because when you're talking about the king's treasury and all the vast, glorious resources of the throne, this man had control by his authority over who had access to the king's resources or who was denied the king's resources. He could open and he could close. Now, you may notice there, and hopefully given that we've been going through Revelation, that statement there, verse 22, the key of the house of David, so he shall open, verse 22, and no one shall shut, and he shall shut, and no one shall open. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus takes that statement, remember, and he quotes it, and he ascribes it to himself as the ultimate fulfillment of that. Because in a much greater way, over the treasuries of the house of the kingdom of God and the treasuries of God and all the spiritual resources of God's power and provision and all the spiritual blessings that God affords to us, Jesus is the one who has the key to give access to the treasuries of all the things of the kingdom of God and the spirit. And Jesus is the one who can grant access or deny access because he is the one who is able to open and no one can shut, and the one who can shut, and no one opens. And what a wonderful thing to be able to know Jesus and have a relationship with Jesus, because to realize that it is through him that access and opportunity comes to pass. And it's also through Jesus that access and opportunity can be denied and doors can be shut. But that we can trust the Lord with that, that if the Lord opens a door, Nobody's going to shut it. If the Lord shuts a door, then no one's going to open it. And we can trust Jesus in the security of those things and his greater knowledge as the ultimate steward over such. In verse 23, he describes as well of the ministry of Eliakim saying, God says, I will fasten him as a peg in a secure place and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. In other words, he's describing the difference with Eliakim compared to Shebna is that Eliakim brought security to the people. He became like a peg. Yeah, and that day, a peg, kind of the same idea we might think in our mind like a hook where you hang stuff on, hang a cup on, hang a coat on. The idea is that the way that he functioned, it helped secure things in people's lives and people were able to depend upon him. He was dependable. Like a peg in a wall, people could, in a sense, depend upon his stability. That's what he provided to the people. He provided stability for them, just like Jesus is what secures our souls, and Jesus provides stability for us. He says, verse 24 of Eliakim, they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house and the offspring and the posterity, all the vessels of small quantity from the cups 
to all the pitchers. Again, he was someone who was dependable and reliable, much better in that position than the one who was undependable and self-serving who had just been removed from it. Now, interesting how this chapter concludes because he says there at the end of verse 25, and in that day, says the Lord of hosts, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall and the burden that was on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. Now, because ultimately the nation was still going to fall, because ultimately the greater judgment was still coming, even though Eliakim was a faithful steward who took over that role for a period of time, God says ultimately in that day still, even that strong fastened peg that was so dependable that people could rely upon and depend upon, and he brought great security and stability to help the people of God in his ministry and in his role, God says, look, even that, someday that's going to be removed. And I think what God is conveying to the people here is just reminding them to realize that ultimate dependency should be upon the Lord himself, not any person. Because even the greatest of men are still men at best. Even God's greatest servants who God works through and who God uses, and they may be like the strongest, most stable, secure peg who we greatly appreciate. Man, that person is dependable, reliable. They keep things fastened down. They, they bring great service and ministry to the work of the Lord. The bottom line is those are just still human beings. And whether it's because a man has an expiration date and he dies and goes home to be with the Lord, at times, listen, folks, at times God moves on the workman, but the work never stops because it's ultimately God's work. And, and that's the wonderful thing and why we should not ultimately be completely dependent upon any person, even a great and faithful minister, because the reality is, remember, just like we saw earlier in the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah himself says, in the year that King Uzziah, what did he say? Died, I saw the Lord. In the year that that great, good, moral, godly king died, who everybody appreciated and looked up to, man, he's such a good leader, he's such a good leader, and then he died, and Isaiah said, in the year when that happened, it was hard to swallow, but it, what it did do is it made me look to the real throne. It made me look to God's throne, and I saw God in a whole new way because I realized man, I've lost this stable person, but I haven't lost stability altogether because God's the rock of ages. And I think this is the thing that God wanted his people to be able to see and to understand this glorious reality that ultimately, though Eliakim would be removed, their ultimate dependence really shouldn't be upon a person anyway. Now, let me just conclude by sharing a thought or two here. Obviously, though I thought I was going to cover chapter 23, I'm not going to. You're greatly surprised, I'm sure. Um, look at verse 25 again. Remember, we've talked about many times, you know, we just talked about this past Sunday morning where the Bible tells us that, you know, in the volume of the book, it's written of me. And how all of the word of God, particularly much of the Old Testament, is intended to foreshadow the life of Christ, to display the person of Christ, to reveal. Look how verse 25, again, as we think about the reality how in some ways, you know, ultimately, as I said, Jesus ascribed verse 22 of this chapter to himself in Revelation chapter 3, quoting that as the ultimate fulfillment, Jesus being the ultimate faithful servant over God's house, 
who opens and closes and grants access and denies access, is not verse 25 somewhat of a beautiful reminder about Jesus and what he experienced as well? Here's Jesus. He was this stable, secure, reliable steward over the house of God and yet fastened in a secure place. But yet notice of Jesus, he will be removed. Look at the language there. And cut down and fall. Is that not exactly what happened with Jesus? How Jesus, the Son of God coming, being who he was, but yet he was removed from the earth. He was cut down in death and fell in his humanity as he was put to death on the cross for our sins. And why? Because the burden, verse 25, the burden of our sin was upon Jesus. And it was all by design. And though he was removed for us, it was all part of a plan and a purpose to ultimately bring greater benefit to us so that we might know that despite our own sin and our own guilt, and though we deserve the judgment of God, like these people deserve the judgment of God, that we're not appointed to wrath but to obtain salvation because of who Jesus was and what he did for us, our great and faithful high priest and savior and servant. Let's stand together.